Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Blaze Experience. If you're joining us today, you're joining us for episode number 33. And this episode is going to be a special episode. We actually have an interview with Jeffrey Carr from Undead Labs. So he's here today with us to talk about a little bit about his career, about State of Decay, and everything included. So how are you, Jeffrey? Uh, I'm doing all right. Just got the kids off to school and uh, stretching a little bit because, uh, you know, I've actually got room to swing my arms around. <laughs> That's always good then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know how that is with kids. You know, you don't always have the most time to yourself. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the, they always are competing with me for the, the gaming machines, which is <laughs> that, that's the biggest challenge right now because I don't I don't get a lot of opportunity to play games besides my own. And uh, yeah, cause post, mostly because I'm uh, competing with so many people for the for the devices. I didn't even think about that. My daughter's not old enough yet to play. So I guess when she gets older, I might have to compete with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 an issue. <laughs> My uh, my oldest daughter has just gotten into Tomb Raider, and so she's playing through the back catalog of Crystal Dynamics games, and uh, she's really, really loving it. She wants to be uh, Lara Croft for Halloween, and so she's completely <laughs> taken over the family room, and then the other kids always want the PCs, so. Yeah, I know from the streams that you've done um, at work, she seems to be pretty good at like, some of the games, so. <laughs> yeah, my, my kids, uh, we, we, we train them at a very young age. <laughs> yeah, so you have some great players there, so. <laughs> <laughs> But we're just going to start out with your early career a little bit. So, uh, you know, what kind of drew you into video games when you were younger? So when you were about your kid's age, you know, what kind of drew you into those? Uh, well, so the the kinds of things that I used to play with as a kid, my, my parents were very against buying uh, like branded toys. Like, they, like I had to beg them like crazy to give me my my only He-Man action figure because, you know, I would watch all the ads on TV for, for a lot of these toys and I would want them because that's what ads do to children. Uh, but... I, you know, my parents had this attitude. They're like, well, you know, you're going to get bored of the story of this particular character. You're going to get bored uh, of stuff really fast. And we're going to spend a bunch of money on you. And then it's not going to be worth it. And they were absolutely right. Like, they got me that He-Man action figure. And then I, I played with him for like uh, a week. And I was like, okay, well, I'm done with him. Uh, the things that actually stuck with me long term, toy-wise, when I was a kid, were, were Legos. Things where, you know, they kind of uh, unlocked boundless creativity and, and, you know, the ability to tell right. my own stories. And, uh, and so my parents knew me very well and they, they you know, the, the things they decided to spend their money on were actually probably the best toys for me. But uh, among those were, were video games, you know, because similarly they, they opened up a lot, you know, compared to say TV and movies, video games opened up a lot of room for me to participate in them creatively. Um, the, the kinds of games that I played a lot as a kid were, uh, games like, you know, I played Civilization, uh, SimCity was a huge favorite. Uh, I loved the Racing Destruction set on the Atari, um, the Adventure Construction set uh, uh, from EA that was uh, on PC. Like a lot of these things, they were all about, you know, me creating things uh, within within a world of, of boundaries set by set by other people. So it's it was almost like playing with another human being. We lived in a neighborhood where it was mostly a retirement community. I was like one of the only children uh, within like you know a square mile, and so it was helpful to have uh, these these toys. That wouldn't just, you know, they weren't just a toy that I would play with, but they were a creative toy where I could invest myself and then they would push back. They would have rules of their own and they would have, you know, AI driven characters and 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 ways for for me to sort of explore the world in a in a very interactive and um, you know, sort of tangible way. No, I definitely understand that. I think that's something unique about video games because you mentioned TV and movies, for example. I mean, you could still enjoy those worlds, but you can't really interact with them. With video games, you can interact with that world. Yeah, and it definitely, I mean, they both 
both have their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, there's certain kinds of stories uh, and certain kinds of dramatic experiences that you can only have in a non-interactive medium where the, the helplessness of the audience is a big part of uh, of the emotional uh, experience. Like like riding right. a roller coaster. The fact that you can't just suddenly stop and get out of the roller coaster is a part of the experience. That's like a, a, a key. If you could just opt out at any second then it wouldn't really be a roller coaster. It's the fact that you're trapped and you have to experience this entire thing that makes it, you know, such an emotional thrill ride. And and movies are a lot the same way. You know, the fact that you can't stop the characters from making their terrible decisions, uh, and you can't determine the outcome, creates kind of, you know, a lot of dramatic tension that is lost often from video games because in video games, you always expect that I should be able to overcome this. I should be able to tell a perfect story of one success after another. Um, and it's just, you know, the, the dramatic possibilities are different. That's one thing I really actually appreciate about the State of Decay franchise is that it's it's built around the idea of playing through your mistakes and, and having having bad things happen, but you have to live with them because that, that gives us more um, dramatic opportunities than, than you'd have in a normal linear game. Exactly, and I really appreciate that too because, like you said, you, know, you can have mistakes, but you have to figure out your way around those. You know, there's some other games that do that, but not a lot of games force you to actually learn from your mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of games that that you know you make a mistake but then the story just takes you on anyways yeah or or, or you reload your game again and again and again until you have right uh, your exactly. character basically has a perfect day <laughs> from their right. perspective <laughs> since they didn't see any of the failures just everything went right for them exactly especially if you're a serious save scummer <laughs> definitely but you did mention civilization is that one of the games that kind of um first drew you into gaming uh, yeah, I think so. Well, so, so if you talk about what first drew me into gaming, I mean, I'm old enough that it really was, it was older like Atari games that, that pulled me in. Right. But uh, but Civilization was actually, it was one of the early games that, where, where my dad showed me how to mod it so that I could uh, rename all of the, rename all of the civilizations, rename the leaders, rename the default cities, uh, and, and sort of tell stories about different different worlds other you know other than our own that's that's one thing i've always i've always thought of civilization uh primarily for me as being uh, a storytelling tool like it's a it's a mode of creative expression the strategy side of it the fact that i'm you know competing and trying to beat uh, uh another entity uh at, at taking over the world is only like that's secondary like you know ga- and versions of civilization that are only about the competition like like civilization revolution feels like it's more about the board game and the competition I spent less time with those than with the ones that that really sort of feel, felt like they were about unlocking creative tools for me to rewrite history, you know, in 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 my own image. Uh, that that experience was kind of what I got out of uh, Civilization, and it's kind of what I've been looking for from a lot of games, you know, for for most of my life. Like, I mean, there's definitely I'm able to enjoy a lot of different games from a lot of different genres. You know, I'm, I'm getting into Spider-Man right now, for instance, which is you know. You're playing a particular character, playing through a particular story. It's not like I'm, you know, rewriting the world of Spider-Man on my own. But I've always had a special place. Like, like the 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 games that I consider to be, I don't know, my the, my favorites. You know, the ones that that really speak to me the most are games like RimWorld, where uh, it it really is about you know they provide a world with rules, and then I figure out you know what I'm going to build within that world. No, that definitely makes sense, and. For me, I only played Civilization Revolution, but I think that was a big draw for me because I do like history a lot, too. So I mm-hmm. like playing as those characters from history, you know, like Alexander the Great or Cleopatra or all these famous leaders you hear about. I like playing as them and kind of, you know, experiencing their history and kind of moving through it that way. Yeah, no, and I have a lot of respect, uh, a lot of respect for that. And uh, I think that 
one of the one of the things that's interesting about working on State of Decay is that uh, you know, like you just illustrated, there's a lot of diversity in in the audience, right? People want different things out of games. I want one thing out of Civilization, and you kind of appreciate another thing. You know, I think there's a lot of overlap between us too. I think we both enjoy a lot of the same stuff about Civilization, but you've got one focus, I've got another, and and that's true of the entire State of Decay audience. You know, like everybody out there wants a slightly different thing out of the game, and because the game is so broad, it does so many different things. P- different people have have glommed onto it for different reasons and one of the challenges of continuing to develop the franchise is trying to you know address the needs of such a broad audience you know because every choice we make usually it, it, it favors one segment of the audience and and maybe it you know spends a little less time with <laughs> with other parts of the audience and we have to make sure we're not leaving anyone behind and it's it's a difficult balancing act but we, we try to pay attention to the community and and hear where people are are, are seeing lacks or you know missed, missed opportunities so we can eventually come in and you know try to satisfy them no that definitely makes sense to me too because with state of decay too i mean i love everything about the game but i would say what I'm most passionate about is probably the base management stuff and the character like customization, you know, mm-hmm. not customization in some people's senses, but the customization in the sense of like the specializations. Those mm-hmm. are the kind of things I enjoy the most because I like to actually build things up and minimize or maximize them the way I want. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of people for whom that's that's the main appeal. For some people, it's just it's the zombie killing mayhem, is, right. <laughs> you know, and sort of the the physical athletic challenge of of trying to survive, uh, you know in the zombie apocalypse for some other people it's a lot of folks get into it for the equipment you know a lot of folks are really passionate about what guns we have what melee weapons we have uh and they really sort of uh you know they they want to live out that that sort of prepper fantasy of having all the right gear and uh you know putting it to use you know for your own survival and there's a lot of people who are into it mostly for the co-op people who played the original state of decay and it was mostly the promise of co-op uh later on in the future of the franchise it sort of enticed them forward um, and, and so it's just, it's so many different things. And I think that, you know, everyone's got the capacity to appreciate what's good, you know, about all these different aspects of the game. But like when, when somebody has got one thing as their main focus, it's a challenge for us because, you know, we can't, we can't do everything simultaneously, but we do still appreciate the fact that we've got this broad audience that's, that's discovered this game and found things to like in it. And we, we want to make sure that we're listening to them and, and doing our best to, to provide an experience that, that, you know, make, give, gives everyone a good time. Right. I agree with that for sure. And I will say quickly, one thing I really love about State of Decay as well is there's not a lot of room for griefing in the game. There's not a lot of room for people to, you know, be mean to you in your game and ruin your games. I really love that about the State of Decay franchise. We tried really hard. It's that we were actually we kind of expected from the beginning to be impressed by the ingenuity of people figuring out how to grief each other. Uh, so you know, people who go and like break all of their friends' rucksacks, for instance, right. or uh, for a while they were able to easily uh, blow up each other's cars. I think we managed to fix that particular exploit, but uh, but still, there were there were some habits some that some folks got into where you know they were having a little bit too much fun uh, making things difficult for other people rather than rather than collaborating. But but that is the goal, right? We wanted this story not to just be, you know, some some zombie apocalypse stories are very nihilistic. They're just like humanity sucks, everyone's evil, and they're all gonna die, and we're gonna feel good when they're right. gone. And and that's not really the attitude of State of Decay. We're much we're much more focused on, you know, even under the worst circumstances. You know, that's that's a way to see humans shine. And so and hopefully that that theme kind of comes across. I think it definitely does, and I really love that about the game for sure. But before we get into more State of Decay, do you want to talk about some of your career before Undead Labs, kind of where you started out career-wise? Uh, well, I started out making uh, games based on uh, 
movie and TV licenses for kids. I worked at a, a company called Amaze, Amaze Entertainment that did, you know, I did like a Samurai Jack game, an Over the Hedge game, a Shark Tale game. And, uh, and there was an interesting experience, partly because, uh, you know, I think you learn the most from designing within constraints and you're working with a brand and specifically working with a very low budget. Uh, with a brand, uh, it, you know, it really constrains your options and it makes you, uh, you know, it forces you to make really difficult decisions. But I think making really difficult decisions is is sort of the fast track to, to getting good at your craft. Uh, and so I was really grateful because, you know, I was kind of, I was one of the last generation of game developers who really didn't have a clear uh, college route into the industry. Uh, I kind of lucked into the opportunity to, to get my first entry-level design job. And, uh, you know, and it was just like, oh, you seem like a clever chap. Let's give you an entry level design job. And that <laughs> right. doesn't really happen anymore very much. And so I, I was extremely lucky. Um, and my, my goal throughout the first several years of my career was just please don't get fired this year. Just learn enough this year to show you're making progress and, <laughs> and don't lose this ridiculous opportunity because I never felt like I deserved the opportunity. But I felt like, you know, now that I've got it, I am damn well going to earn. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try to right. earn it retroactively. Uh, and so I worked my butt off for the, for the first, you know, several years of my career, uh, until I, you know, until I had kids and I had to sort of pull my foot off the gas just a little bit, uh, and not, you know, be working, you know, 60 hour weeks every week. And, uh, and eventually, you know, I had to start trying to earn my keep by, uh, you know, making, trying to make good mature decisions about uh, the, the the you know the planning of a of a game um and you know trying to do good work rather than just trying to do the maximum amount of work that's something you can do maybe you know when you're in your early 20s but once you get older and you've got you know more responsibility and and you know more lives that that depend on you uh you, you have to try to you know not just burn yourself out but actually step back and have a little bit of a little bit of a balance to your life which is one great thing about undead labs is they you know while occasionally you know we have needed to crunch in the past the crunches have been actually some of the lightest crunches of my career and they're pretty few and far between compared to uh to you know my experiences doing work for hire they they really are very focused on work-life balance, being understanding, letting me have a flexible schedule so that, you know, if my family needs something at the drop of a hat, I always know I can prioritize them and the company will understand. And that that feels really good to, to work at a place like that. That's really awesome, too. And it, it seems like Undead Plaza is a great place to work. And, you know, it seems like all of you guys are great there. So I really appreciate all of you guys. So before I um, uh, went to Undead Labs, my company, uh, Amaze Entertainment, I say my company, it's not like I ever owned it, uh, I worked there, <laughs> right. uh, was, was bought by Glue Mobile. And so I actually switched over to making mobile games uh, for a few years before I went to Undead Labs, which was, uh, it was an interesting education for one thing, because we were, in a few cases, uh, developing our own original properties, which was a, a first for me in my career. You know, I'd always been working with established brands. Um, and so not, not everything we did worked out. Uh, probably the, the most successful thing I was involved in at Glue was uh, Deer Hunter 2014, uh, which was, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was uh, we were trying to figure out sort of the best way to, to adapt old school Deer Hunter gameplay to sort of the modern era of, you know, free-to-play mobile games was, was an interesting challenge. Uh, but while, while I was working on Deer Hunter 2014, I had this other idea that I kept sort of, uh, you know, 
it was percolating in the back of my head. I kept trying to pitch it to people and it never really got much traction, but it was the idea of doing a, a mobile game where you had a bunch of survivors in the zombie apocalypse you were trying to maintain. And, you know, they had, they needed resources and they were, we were going to, you know, have them like you know, travel all over the world uh, or travel all over, you know, the country and, uh, and you needed to keep them alive. And, and you would have, you know, a lot of the sim, you know, kind of a similar experience to state of decay, which, you know, at that point I'd never heard of state of decay. Um, and right. then one time I, then I, I went to PAX and I saw this game on the floor that was State of Decay at the Microsoft booth. And I looked at it. I was like, well, this is exactly the game I've been trying to make, only it's for a console instead of for uh, a phone. And I sat down and I played it. I was like, this is this is exactly what I wanted. Holy crap. And so I started talking to them. And over the course of the next year, um, persuaded them to, to give me a shot. You know, they, as soon as the game came out, they hired me to, to work on uh, the, the PC version and the expansion packs. And, and I just felt like, you know, it was, it was a kind of a big turning point in my career, getting to work on this game that basically, you know, if I'd been left to my own devices with an unlimited budget, that's exactly the kind of game I would have made. And not everyone gets to work on a game that is exactly the kind of game they would have made on their own. So, so to me, it was it was kind of a life-changing opportunity so I'm, I'm still grateful to be here yeah and that sounds like an amazing opportunity and it, it's kind of funny how you just you know it started talking to them and it kind of worked out that way <laughs> yeah no it took it, it took it did take about a year of sort of getting to know them because uh you know under labs tries very hard to you know uh to make sure that they're hiring people that they can trust uh you know they, right. they really want to make sure they're hiring veterans people have a proven track record who've um you know demonstrated that that they're reliable um, because once they do hire somebody, they they give them a lot of trust. You know, people at uh, on our team, we try really hard to structure things, um, and we're we're getting you know slowly better at this over time to structure things so that uh, everyone has a shot at you know some creative input in the game. We don't have a few people at the top making all of the decisions, and then that just percolates down, and everybody gets a task list. We're really trying very hard to involve everyone in problem solving, giving a lot of give, giving a lot of people on the team a lot of room to to figure out the answers to problems on their own, and to have a lot of you know. Uh, control over their own schedules, control over you know their own their own work, um, and I, I think it's something we can continue to improve at. But it's definitely one of the goals at the studio. Um, but to do that, to make that work, you really have to hire people that you trust. You have to hire people that, when you give them an assignment, you give them a lot of you know control over over what they're going to do, that you know that the outcome is going to be good. Um, one of the first things that I was ever asked to do when I when I first joined the company was to write basically a, a dev diary about uh, what my work was going to be going forward, like you know, what we were going to do with the PC version of the game. And I, I don't remember exactly what that first article was about now, but I do remember I'd only been at the company for a few weeks when I wrote it. And I had never been allowed to write public-facing PR text before for a company. And I kept saying, well, I assume I need to like run this by like 12 different people to get it approved. And I was just absolutely terrified. I was going to, I was going to write something that would get rejected because that's just, that was my experience, you know, with working with companies right. that were, they were paranoid that anything an employee did was going to be wrong and was going to ruin everything. And so we had to keep, you know, employees locked down and under wraps and no one can ever speak or be heard from. And to have Undead Labs immediately trust me to write something that they were going to post on their website and figure, no, 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 you got it. You'll be fine. You'll do a great job. It, it shows the attitude that they have towards their employees, you know, that they, they really kind of, they trust us to go out there and, you know, be ourselves and make decisions. And, you know, you know the company feels like there, there's room for us to, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes, you know, I say dumb things on the stream and, you know, sometimes people make mistakes, but the, I think the company's made a decision that it's, it's worth letting us occasionally say dumb things and occasionally make mistakes to get the other benefits of, you know, of our creative input and our investment in the company. Like that we, we, the company gets so much more out of letting us have that kind of freedom and that kind of, you know, connection with the audience 
that uh, that it, it's it's worth you know the occasional small downside. Right, because I think that way it promotes you know great teamwork and a great place to work, which is what you want in a workplace. So. That is definitely the goal, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's probably, uh, you know, it, you never get it perfectly. And so I, you know, I know that there's a, that there's folks out there who probably uh, are thinking, you know, oh, if only Undead Labs was better at doing all of these things. And yeah, so I think I think, you know, we're, we're sort of we've got our goals and, you know, we're we're, we're on a path. And, and it, it is really nice that whenever I hear, you know, folks in leadership talking about this stuff, I mean, they I can tell that they they really do care about trying to you know maximize all the benefits of, you know, giving employees responsibilities, giving us, you know, creative input and letting, you know, everyone be be involved in decision making about their own work. Oh, definitely. I'm glad you actually had that little bit of freedom like that. Because, for example, when I asked you to come on the podcast, I wasn't sure, okay, is he gonna have to run this by five people to come on the podcast? Or like, (laughs) (laughs) no, it was it was only one person. And it was almost halfway pre approved. So (laughs) (laughs) well, that's good, then. (laughs) Yeah. No, but um, real quick before with your early career, you said you worked on some established properties like uh, Samurai Jack and things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is harder to work on established property like that than a um, intellectual property that's you know not established already? Um, it, it so so there's kind of a good side and a bad side, right? On the on the good side, uh, you know, ha- knowing what your boundaries are from the outset actually it 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 jumps you ahead in the creative process a lot, and it gives you some you know something to to play off of when you really do just have boundless open fields of creativity in front of you just deciding what the first constraints are going to be is really hard you know it's really hard to sort of nail down what your game is and you're just making it up out of whole cloth right I think State of Decay actually benefits a lot from having the boundaries of the zombie genre. It's like you, even though the game was original, you know, it was playing enough off, you know, this this cultural zeitgeist phenomenon that it still knew kind of what its boundaries were, and and it could play within those boundaries. So having boundaries, you know, especially for me when I was a when I was a young designer, you know, needing to 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 having something else to play off was was really was really valuable. Uh, so I think that that that's actually good, and that actually makes uh, it easier. Where it gets harder is you know not every property was designed to be a video game you know there are some out there right that that are just natural fits you're like oh yeah obviously that's a video game why haven't they made a video game of this yet because it's obviously going to be really fun um but there there are others where it's really hard to find the fun in the idea and you know and sometimes you you're almost there you're like oh if i could only do this it would be really fun but you can't do that because that violates something in the style guide or something in the you know in, in the brand identity so it's it, so the so constraints can be extremely useful but you know constraints that uh, that you set yourself like for instance you know with state of decay you know the the company decided what kind of game they wanted to make and they they chose the constraints that they had which is you know we're making a game that feels like it's a solid representation of the of the zombie apocalypse that everyone you know knows and loves and then we'll you know we'll, we'll take it we'll take that idea in new directions but basically you know we're we're choosing a set of constraints that we know complement the fun we're trying to create um when you're working with the set of constraints that we're not intentionally chosen in order to maximize fun uh but but you know exist for some other reason they can sometimes they'll be they'll be they'll create difficulties that you you maybe would have preferred not to deal with so you know it's six one half a dozen the other i'm I'm kind of uh, i'm glad i had the one experience and now i'm kind of glad i'm getting to try the other side of it no it definitely makes sense to me and i would just think that with an established property like say oh i'm the world's biggest samurai jack fan like if you don't do justice to that character i would think that's you know really hard to do that because some people might be you know 
particular about their characters and you know the way that they're supposed to be represented. Yeah, that's true. That wasn't that was something I wasn't even thinking of. Was you know because I worked in a, an earlier era. Uh, so there was no social media at the time that I was working on these properties. Uh, I didn't quite have the same opportunity for people to jump in and, and you know, excoriate us for ruining their favorite characters. So I didn't get right. to see a lot of that stuff. I know that that's something that, that, that is more of a concern with people working with licenses today. Right, yeah, because you mentioned Spider-Man. You know, somebody, somebody might think the most recent Spider-Man game, oh, that's not what Spider-Man would do or something. So <laughs> Yeah, they could definitely <laughs> nitpick it to death, though. I think... Exactly, um, yeah. <laughs> so they did a great job with the game, though. And I think that's, that's actually an example of, you know, Spider-Man is a character that suggests some amazingly fun gameplay that, that maybe, you know, nobody might have come up with what it feels like to swing on a web through the city unless, you know, the comics and the movies had, had and, you know, TV shows had established it first, you know, because they established in a non-video game setting what it looks and feels like to be Spider-Man, that gave the video game so much, you know, fuel, so much, uh, you know, raw material to work with to create this crazy experience that probably wouldn't have existed in any form if there hadn't been a Spider-Man license out there for them to be inspired by you know you could have done i mean you've got like games like just cause where you've got you know a grappling hook that you're using and uh, which is kind of similar to web swinging but it's not exactly that really iconic spider-man right web that makes experience. sense no so, definitely so it's good it's good to have licensed games out there i think you know i do tend to appreciate really weird out there original uh you know game properties and that that's sort of a, a lot of my favorites are in that area but I'm glad we have licensed games. I think that, you know, they, they definitely serve a, a really valuable role. And some of the, I mean, some of the best recent experiences I've had, recent experiences I've had, um, including Spider-Man, you know, are, are, are from uh, are from that world. No, I would agree with that for sure. And I like licensed properties too. I would just think, you know, like we talked about, that's one of the challenges over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I know you are a game designer. Do you want to talk about some of the differences between game design and art and game programming so people get the feel of that? Uh, so, well... The difference between a designer and an artist and a programmer primarily is that um, an artist can either draw or not, um, and a programmer can either, you know, they either can code or not. And, and there's certain a certain minimum level of qualification that everyone can tell if this person's good at their job or not good at their job. Um, and, you know, and I know I'm not a programmer. I know that I couldn't sit down, you know, in front of like Visual Studio and make something happen. And I know I'm not an artist. Like I can, you know, sketch stuff out on a, on a whiteboard to help people understand uh, an idea that I've got, but I'm never going to write, you know, never going to draw something or create something in a, you know, 3D modeling program that's going to impress anybody. And I know that. I know I am not either of those things. Um, but a designer is a di- is different. You know, a, a designer is someone who, you know, in, in almost any field, it's about understanding um, human perspectives, the human experience. You know, understanding what people, how people react to things, and then coming up with solutions to to, to help the person have the experience you want them to have. Like you're know, someone who designs door handles, for instance. You know, they they they've established a lot of things that they've learned about human psychology. That when you see a horizontal door handle, you expect to push, and when you see a vertical door handle, you expect to pull. And they, you know, they establish a bunch of rules, and it's all about sort of reading people's minds in advance, understanding what people, how people think, and and, and what they want from an experience, and then providing them exactly the tools that they need to have the experience you want them to have. And you know, that it applies to door handles, it applies to interior design, it implies to you know architecture. Uh, all these different you know design disciplines it works and and that's how it works in video games the thing is i mean that's not something that you have to necessarily uh you know at least that 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 ground level basic understanding of humanity that's not something that you 
are taught that you go to school for and you know that oh i'm you know that person's really you know really has this skill and this other person doesn't have it at all like everyone's got some amount of this skill this ability to sort of tell what works and what doesn't as as a human being and and so it's hard for me to 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 prove to somebody we'll see like i'm a game designer and you're not a game designer like i can't really say that i mean the uh, you know a lot of the the skills that i use a lot of the 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 jobs that i do day to day are things that literally anyone could do the be- and so the, the benefit of of my you know years of experience doing game design and and the practice that i've had at it means that you know i sometimes will anticipate problems that that someone who's less experienced might not anticipate you know, I've solved similar problems before and I might get to solutions quicker. Um, and then there's a lot of sort of that uh, ground level content building that designers do, you know, making items, balancing economies, um, you know, creating content for things like traits and skill systems that, you know, that I think somebody can be good at the way that, you know, a writer can be really good at writing stories. So so there, there are definitely some hard skills that are that are valuable for a game designer to have. But the fundamental baseline for being a game designer, it's it's a set of talents that lots of people have in lots of disciplines. And so the biggest challenge of being a game designer is is proving that I that I should even be there at all. It, it's it's you know cr- trying to overcome imposter syndrome because I mean you know there there are a lot of programmers and artists and animators and you know audio guys uh, you know on on my team who are very good at game design. You know who who you know they they see a problem and they come up with a really good solution to it and they can you know imagine the player experience and respond to it in advance and and have a good sense of of human nature and and all of those skills that a game designer needs to have. A lot of my colleagues who are not, you know, formally game designers have all of those skills. And so, you know, my my biggest challenge day to day is is trying to add enough value to this game as a full time designer that that everyone around me doesn't just go, well, why do we need this guy? We, we, we can make all right. these decisions, you know, just as well ourselves. So, so so I work really hard to try to do that. You know, I mean, I want I want to make sure that that I am adding value to to the team, and I think you know we definitely believe in sort of a a blue collar mentality uh, for designers at our studio. You know, every designer there's no designer who just sits in a in a in an ivory tower and just has ideas and just passes them down to other people to implement their beautiful grand vision. All of our designers, right. you know, we, we get elbow deep in the scripting and we are making content ourselves and we are constructing the game by hand, uh, the same way that everyone else on the team is constructing the game. And that's really important to us. We never want somebody to feel like, uh, you know, the the that the designer is just sitting up there, doesn't understand the work that everyone else is doing, and is just handing down edicts. We want all the designers to be in the trenches with other with other folks. And and you'll notice we kind of have, uh, you know, the the leadership on on our little sub projects. You know, things like you know DLC packs and stuff like that. So far, a lot of the leadership of of those packs have not been um, they've not been designers. You know, they've been artists uh, and and folks from other disciplines. And and we're doing that on purpose. Like we really want to 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 make it clear to everybody on the team that designers are not in charge of the game by virtue of being designers. You know, there, there's this sort of natural hierarchy depending on how you um, set up your teams. There's it, it's easy to slip into a natural hierarchy where because designers are the first ones who you know who come up with ideas and 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 write and, you know specifications for features that uh, that that means that they're in charge. They make the decisions and everybody else has to follow their vision. Um, and it's easy to slip into that by accident. And so we work hard to try to consciously reverse that, make sure that, you know, that, that people who are not designers are involved in leadership and in decision making up front, because so many of the best ideas that, that we've gone after have come from artists and programmers and animators and, you know, other folks on the team. And we want to make sure that, that, that we're not just wasting that by kind of by accident, having the designers make all the decisions up front. We, we want the designers to be 
present at every part of development. We want the rest of the team to also be present at every part of development. No, I think that's a great way to do it, honestly, because that way it feels more team based and you don't have that, you know, sort of resentment that kind of builds up in the workplace as much. That's 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 the goal. I mean, I've definitely at various times in my career felt the 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 resentment that that naturally arises from from structuring a team in the wrong way, you know, because I've never had like a personal desire to just be in charge of the game because I like being in charge. You know, like my goal has always been like, I really want everybody to be as invested in the game they're building as, as I am. Right. I don't want people to, you know, think of, you know, my, you know, executing my beautiful, perfect vision is the goal of the team. That's not the goal of the team. My vision is neither perfect nor whatever, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've got my human perspective and everybody in the team has got their own human perspective. And my goal is always, you know, to, to, to try to satisfy everyone creatively on the team and then also, you know, in the audience as much as possible uh, to create something that, that really surprises people, but also, you know, satisfies them in, in, in predictable and, you know, desirable ways. The, the, the challenge is just the fact that it's hard to figure out how to structure a project, how to structure a team so that it doesn't accidentally slip into this this mode where, you know, okay, everybody, we got to make a bunch of stuff really fast. So designers, write some designs. And as soon as you're done, pass them to other people and those people will make whatever you said. Like, that is sometimes the fastest way to work, but it's not necessarily, I mean, that's not going to lead you to, you know, to the best solutions. The best solutions usually they need to involve input from a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives. Yeah, I think a lot of fans of games too can kind of see that when, you know, the perspective you just said, okay, let's make a bunch of things really fast. They can kind of see when that's, you know, just throwing stuff at the wall in games. So. <laughs> yeah, no, you... <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that a lot in, you know, some of my own work in the past, you know, seeing like, oh, that was our first idea. That didn't work, but we did not have any time to do anything right. else. So uh, that, that happened a lot, especially when we were doing the work for hire stuff, because, uh, you know, games involve a lot of trial and error. And uh, the best thing you can have in a game is a flexible deadline, because you try stuff, you think it's going to work, and then it doesn't. And if you've got a flexible deadline or flexible, you know, uh, you know, requirements, then you can make adjustments and say, okay, well, we need a little bit more time to figure this out. So let's, you know, go a little bit longer or maybe make a few strategic cuts to make room for this. Uh, but if your if your schedule and your resources are just completely locked down and you've bound by contract to deliver a certain thing at a certain time, then it gets a lot harder. You have to be right the first time every single time and so you're not going to be and so you, you end up always shipping something that disappoints you and that's you know that that's that's a rough position to be in i think one of the one of the great benefits actually that that we're looking forward to i think is you know as we've been purchased by microsoft is the fact that you know when you are you know in that sort of first party type position uh you, you do have a lot more flexibility over what you're building, what needs you're trying to satisfy, and 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 what your strategy is. You know, you're not an outside hireling doing a job for somebody else. You are sort of defining your own work, and and uh, and so we're we're hoping to have a lot of freedom to now. You know, as we go forward and keep supporting State of Decay Two and keep thinking about the future of the franchise, that you know that we're going to have a lot more freedom to really sort of step back, make sure we're making the right decisions, and make sure we're you know investing you know as as many resources and as much time as a particular problem needs in order to solve it right. No, definitely. I know you're talking about, you know, some of the constraints that you might have. Like, I know one thing I asked on stream that you answered is when talking about enclaves, you know, when you um, exile someone off your community and then they mm -hmm. actually come back to being in an enclave. Like, I thought that'd be a really cool idea, which you said on the stream that you guys thought of that, but you just didn't have the resources to actually make that person come back to the enclave. 
Yeah, exactly. There, oh man, the version of this game that we imagined in our heads like five years ago <laughs> was, you know, uh, it was very unrealistic. There's no way we actually could have made that game in the time uh, and with the budget that we had. Um, but it was, you know, it had. It's hard to come up with an idea for State of Decay that we didn't have in our original plan because our original plan included almost literally everything. Um, but you know, sense. eventually you, you have to scale back and, and 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 you know get back into the into the realm of reality. And so you know we we, we made the the best decisions we could you know with the with the knowledge and the resources that we had. Um, but I I'm kind of looking forward to having more knowledge and more resources going forward because I think I think we can we can keep pushing this franchise further and you know make making it better and, and and advancing it as time goes on absolutely and I think from what you were saying about you know working with the other programmers and artists it'd probably be safe to say you know you have an idea and then you go to somebody else and they actually make that idea better that's kind of how it's structured a little bit uh, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the, the benefit you try to, you try to get out of collaboration either, either, you know, uh, I have an idea and I, you know, can make it better by talking to folks. Sometimes I have a problem and I go to them and they're the ones who have the ideas <laughs> for solving it. And a lot <laughs> of times, you know, we, we've got folks on, on the team who are very open about, you know, they'll play the game and they'll, they'll, you know, bubble up, you know, solutions and ideas and, you know, problems, you know, themselves from, from all over the place. I mean, we're, we try to, you know, maintain, you know, a, a setting where people feel like that not just that, that their feedback is welcome, but their feedback is heard and, and, you know, it can actually make a difference. No, I agree with that. I think that's a great way to look at it. So we try anyway. <laughs> I'm always terrified <laughs> to say that we do something because there's going to be somebody on my team who listens to this podcast like, oh, you're not doing that well enough. And I'm like, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but we're trying, but we're trying, we're trying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can understand that. But do you want to take us a little bit through your process of creating new assets in the game? So like, say you're, you know, coming up with a new list of traits or a, a new skill or something. How would you go about making that new skill? Uh, usually what we're doing is, is is we're looking for gaps in the game. We're looking for, you know, we try to sort of, if you kind of picture uh, <laughs> in your head, you know, all the systems of the game and all the places where, uh, you know, where maybe the, the traits and the skills aren't, aren't, aren't affecting something that they could affect. Like, um... There was a point later later on in, in development where uh, I where I suddenly realized that we didn't have any traits or skills that really affected uh, driving. You know that, that we didn't have a lot of uh, you know that there was no particular reason to send one person on a long drive than another, and that felt like oh that's a gap like that's a place where you know we've already got buffs on your fuel efficiency you know why don't we apply those to a character with with a trait that says you know they've got um, you know some characters would say that you know they've got like a, a, a lead foot or something and 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 they waste too much gas when they're driving but other people might be really efficient um, and you know things like that like we we look for places in in the game where where there's where we just haven't done anything yet and then we try to come up with a good skill to to fill that gap um, right up front you know we when we were trying to figure out what the initial shape of the of the skill landscape was going to be it was a really similar process we're like you know what are the activities that players engage in what are the the things that that we want them to think about like like when you if you were actually in real life you know building your zombie survival base what are the things you'd have to learn? What are the, the the questions you'd have? What are the experts you'd want? You know, you'd want someone who knows about medicine. You'd want someone who can who can build and maintain things. You want someone who knows about electricity and plumbing. You know, you want someone who knows about chemistry. You know, we, we read uh, you know books about you know surviving in the apocalypse, and so much of it was about knowing how to make charcoal and and and, and use a still to make different chemicals right. and and stuff like that. And so. We sort of started laying out some stakes and saying, okay, you know, we want to have this skill be important, we want that skill to be important. We're trying to fill all these gaps so that players feel like, you know, when they're imagining 
who it is they'd want to recru- recruit to their uh, to their real world zombie community, uh, zombie survival community, not a community of zombies. Um, <laughs> That'd be fun that, too, though. That, that we're covering all the bases. That, that you know, whatever it is that they would have fantasized in real life, we've got something that represents that in the game. Um, and then we sort of built around that. And so, you know, a lot of our you know decisions about how you know electricity and 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 water work, or about how um, you know medicine works. A lot of it was about trying, you know, kind of was a little bit backwards. It, it, sometimes we would think of, you know, there'd be a system we knew we needed to have in the game and then we'd create a skill to fuel it. But sometimes it was the opposite. Sometimes we knew we wanted to represent a certain skill and so we came up with systems in the game to justify the existence of that skill. Uh, because because it was really about sort of, you know, this is very similar, like I was mentioning before, it's actually very similar to working on a branded property because you're working with the zombie apocalypse zeitgeist you know and people have certain expectations about what a zombie apocalypse would be like and some of them are are based on reality you know like this is really what it takes to survive in any you know circumstance and some of it is based on you just a lot of you know years and years of lore building up about how people operate in these kinds of settings and uh and so you know we we had kind of the benefit of those constraints kind of telling us what people would expect so that we we knew which which gaps we needed to fill no that makes sense and going a little bit deeper into the skills though like Say you're taking a skill, computers, for example, and, you know, one of the specializations for that is programming. Do you look at, okay, if you're a programmer, then what would you be able to do? And then that's how you actually have the effects? Or would you think of the effects first and then think of the title? Uh, So in some cases, so programming, yeah, uh, the, the computer skill is interesting, right? Because, you know, computers are not actually a thing that people use a lot in these stories. Uh, you know, we're, our, our, our game is, is an outlier right. when it comes to the amount of computing and hacking and, you know, uh, using satellites and things like that, that, that the characters actually, actually do in the story. Um, and so that was, it was an interesting challenge because the reason we liked the idea of computers up front was the idea that, you know, you give somebody a skill, it doesn't seem like it would be valuable in, in the apocalypse, but then as you you know develop a character with that skill, you begin to realize how valuable they are, and that 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 felt like that sort of spoke to kind of a a, a very human theme, you know, of of learning to appreciate the value of of different people, and so we wanted that experience of like, well, this person has computers, haha, that's not going to be useful, and then we come up with ways for it to be useful, but it was a challenge because you know coming up with ways for a computer expert to be useful in the zombie apocalypse is actually pretty hard. We tended to, we, we, right. we clustered it around the radio because that's sort of the most high-tech thing you have around. Uh, we also, you know, some maybe uh, expensive, um, like, bombs and things like that. Somebody who understands electronics might be might be valuable for those. But uh, it was, it, that was one where we were kind of, you know, kind of straining at the boundaries of, of what we could justify with the skill. But we wanted that skill to to be on par with the other skills, things like medicine, you know, which has an obvious utility and things like, you know, gardening, which has an obvious value to Or like construction, for example. Yeah, construction. Like we can come up with stuff for construction to do. We had to kind of stretch to make things for computers to do. And especially because, you know, once you set the shape of a system, like we say, okay, whenever you have one of these valuable fifth skills, uh, you know, you build them up to seven stars and then you can make a choice, you know, branch them in one direction or another with the specialization. And once we'd set that standard, it was weird to have a seven-star skill that would just end and that wouldn't have any specializations. And so while computers might have worked really well as just a you know a one-off skill, if we wanted to give it those seven stars, we had to put something at the end for it to specialize into, which means we had to come up with even more things for electronics and programming to do. And so programming ended up being more about, you know, like hacking drones and stuff, and uh, which, you know, it was that scene from... Um, 
from Interstellar, you know, where they 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 sort of they capture that Indian drone. Like that that was sort of the inspiration for right. for being able to do that. And then um, you know, and then being able to work with like triggers for bombs and things like that on, on the electronic side felt like felt like that was, you know, something that made sense in in, in the world of of State of Decay, but you know that we ended up actually making the decision. You know, you notice you notice that a lot of the fifth skills have only one star, and and the reason for that was because we had made this rule where, you know, once you leveled up something to seven stars, you could specialize, and it was getting confusing for players that some of the skills we had, things like farting around, you could level it up to seven stars, and then what? I can't specialize my farting around. There's not like two different, really advanced versions of farting around uh, that I can right. do, uh, and so. Uh, it was it was it was Nick Malay I think who who noticed this problem and and made the call that that we needed to do something different with those skills and so we ended up capping all those skills at one star even though technically there's no reason we couldn't have given them you know seven stars we we actually in the data one at a time we made each of them capped it at at uh, at one star so that uh, so that players wouldn't have an, have that expectation so they would see oh I've got a weird skill it's not going to go anywhere it's just going to do one thing the entire time I have it. But, you know, some of those skills are really valuable. I know you've got your favorites, and, and we're trying to add more to the game now that, that we hope will become favorites, too. No, definitely. I think some of the new red talent skills are going to be some of my favorites, too. I think they are really cool skills. They're a little bit OP, but, you know, that's kind of the point. You're, pay- you're paying a lot for these guys. <laughs> definitely. But now that you say that, I mean, you obviously have the ones you can specialize, like computers, like uh, gardening, things like that. What was around the decision to include the rare skill books trader? Because the rare skill books trader gives you skill books for the one star skills. So, what was around the decision to include that? Uh, I, I just I remember that um, it was around. I think that was around the same time that we were uh, we were working on the independence pack, and uh, you know we were offering a lot of you know opportunities for players to to go out and 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 kind of you know get new weird equipment to uh, to augment their communities. And I believe I think that the the suggestion came from Brian because you know he was working on the independence pack trader and he had you know worked previously on on the mysterious you know weekend trader that that comes in with some of the really high high level gear. And, I like that trader. <laughs> yeah. So so he was trying to think of you know, what are what are other sort of rare opportunities to get you know to get players out there you know going and and meeting with mysterious traders by the side of the road and uh, and he came up with the with, with you know the idea of these rare skill books he you know he uh, paid attention to the fact that a lot of players were spending a really really long time on the random character generator uh, you know at the beginning of a new game just trying to get lichenology and you know trying to get fishing because because you know the, those skills when they're you know when they stack with all the other benefits in your community they can really make you know make make a difference and he was like you know there's got to be a way that isn't spending hours clicking the the, <laughs> the randomized button you know to, to get these skills into people's hands and so so simultaneously he was observing people you know doing something that was probably not the most fun way to play state of decay and and he was also looking for solutions for you know it's like i've got these these traders there you know this whole system is really kind of fun to engage in what else that feels really valuable can i offer to the player um and so those two thoughts i think came together in his head and he was like why don't we do a rare skill books trader and uh and once he suggested the idea to me i really liked it so you know i you know uh helped come up with uh with you know help build the books so that they would you know give the characters the traits they needed and give them the skills um but yeah no the the whole thing was was his brainchild and and now you know uh you know we've been working on 
future content for State of Decay. And that's you know knowing that that skill book trader exists is a really great opportunity for us because it, it it means that you know we can add new content to the game, new skills, and know that we've got a way to funnel those to the player. Because that's actually one of the biggest challenges of adding content to a game like State of Decay. It's so wide open and and so you know all of the experiences are very dynamically composed. You know you don't never quite know what you're going to run into, and that's one of the benefits of the game. But it means that when we add content to the game, it's really hard to make sure that players notice the new content, that they can find it. So the, the rare traders are a good way to do that. And so, you know, now when I add a skill to the game, I just need to create a skill book for it. And then people will definitely discover it at some point. No, that makes sense. Is that all you'd have to do is just, you know, make sure that appears in the real, real skill trader and then they can buy it from them. Yeah, exactly. But I do have to ask, though, you know, why was selling not one of those books? <laughs> Uh, you know, honestly, um, it was because we were coming up with the list off the top of our head, and uh, and we knew. The thing is, we knew that we had watched players specifically target fishing and lichenology, and then right. we tried to think ourselves like, well, what are the ones that we know are really interesting? And, and I think that you know, uh, Scrum certification got in there because you know Brian's very focused on the uh, um, you know on the base and base facilities and the whole base strategy thing, and Scrum certification is a very base focused skills uh, skill. And uh, a lot of the others were similarly, just like the ones that, that occurred to me as being the ones that I thought of as the most valuable. But, you know, that I think you're illustrating the value of getting a lot of different perspectives because, you know, you had recognized the value of sewing because it gives you the, you know, the health bonus and, you know, the, the it's increased stack sizes, right? Right, um, and if you pair that with backpacking and resourcefulness, that's a really good stack size right there. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Um, and so you, you'd really notice the, the obvious value of that. But sewing, you know, had actually kind of disappeared at the back of our minds. You know, if we'd gone through every single skill and looked at it and, and looked at its, ben its benefits methodically, we probably would have run across it and thought, oh, this one's pretty valuable. But instead, we were more just sort of gathering impressions from what we had seen people talking about in the community. And so we, we hadn't noticed people talking about sewing. We had noticed them talking about lichenology and fishing. Um, and, you know, and we had, you know, our own personal favorites. And so we went with those, uh, but as soon as you mentioned, you know, sewing being your favorite, I immediately went back and was like, oh, well, I guess we should probably have a sewing skill book. Uh, so, you know, keep your eyes open for the future and, <laughs> okay. uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how this goes. So, so we do pay attention. We try, we really try to, to listen to what folks are saying out, out in the community. And, and we try to be responsive to that because, you know. To what to some degree, you know, uh, you know, we have been doing this for a long time, and sometimes people will make requests where we're like, uh, "That's not going to be as fun as you think it is," or you know, or or we'll be like, you know, we could do that, but it would take so much effort and so many resources, you'd have to miss out on like ten other things that you'd like better. Um, and so there's a lot of cases where our expertise really comes in, you know, when it you know comes to making decisions about what's actually going to be valuable for the game, what's going to really make it better. But at the same time. You know, knowing what people are looking for, knowing what people are asking for is is a key piece of information that we have to know in order to make these decisions well. You know, even though even if we're not actually going to necessarily do exactly what people ask for, ask for every single time, because, you know, there's often very good reasons not to. Um, still, knowing what they're looking for is is really, really important. I think one of the things that that, you know, I've been taught by, you know, writing teachers and stuff in, in the past is when somebody you know reads a story that you've written and tells you oh no what you should have done is this a lot of the time they're wrong but they are right that they had a bad experience that they're trying to fix and so what you need to do is interrogate right. What bad experience I had is it okay? So you really thought that I should have killed off this character, but why did you want to kill the character? Is it because the character's annoying? What makes them annoying? And maybe what you really need to do is fix the thing that made the character annoying, not kill off the character. Like maybe that maybe your friend's solution is not actually the real solution, but you do need to address the fact that they were having a bad time. And and so right. it's just an exaggeration of it, basically. Yeah. So so that's the attitude we try to take, which is you know. 
Um, not every solution suggested by the community is going to be the right answer for the game, but every experience that people report is a real experience that a person actually had, you know, and that's something we need to pay attention to. That is the most important data that we can collect is, you know, what experience are pe experiences are people having with our game? And are there ways that we can learn from those experiences and, and shift the game or expand the game or add to the game in a way that, that will make people happier? No, I definitely understand that. And if I had to make a request for a skill... I would request a skill called analysis. I love to analyze things. So uh -huh. that's, that's my I, what, request. What would but... it do, though? What would analysis do? I, I'm not quite sure yet, but... <laughs> Here's my problem, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, but yeah, I I'll, think keep, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> I think it would operate like logistics. Like logistics is the closest thing to that, I think. So I think it would operate like that. You know, it would probably have a bigger stack size and things along those nature. So, so well, one thing we could probably do is, uh, you know, there's a lot of cases where we where part of the strategic decision is or the creative decision is you know what's going to make sense as a skill and what's going to make sense as a trait right like um, I think at one point we were talking about uh, I'm trying to remember the details of this I'm going to get this wrong but <laughs> we were talking about uh, say hygiene you know being uh, right. being a valuable skill um, and somebody was like oh like uh, basically oh oh that's this is what it was. Uh, we, we were looking for uh, skills and traits that would be valuable um, buffing the your, your infection meter, you know, making you more resistant to infection or less resistant to infection. And so something like hygiene makes sense. Um, we were, that makes uh, sense, yeah. Somebody made the suggestion, oh, what about being, what about a skill called preschool teacher? You know, if, you're, if you've got the skill of a preschool teacher, part of that is, you know, surviving a lot of infection and a lot of, you know, in, infectious diseases being, you know, being exposed to them and, and surviving. But I was like, Okay, that's a great idea, but that's not a skill. That's a trait, uh, you know. And and the the line between skill and trait sense, yeah. is very. It's like a weird wavy dotted gradient. Uh, but you know, I just had the sense that you know, preschool teacher. It's a very specific story about who somebody was in their life, and that's that usually tends to be traits. And then skills are things like. Hygiene, which is like it's a concept, it's a it's a it's a set of behaviors that you've learned, or it's a it's a it's a skill, or it's a routine. Like and and and. Explaining exactly, like you see me struggling for words, like I'm having trouble coming up with a way to describe what the difference between a trait and a skill is conceptually. But I knew in my head, just from, you know, from being really familiar with the system that preschool teacher is a trait that gives you the hygiene skill, right? And, and so, right. so that, that's the way we would have to, if we were to add that, that's the way that we would, that we would have to, you know, go, go about it. But there's lots of interesting, weird, like stylistic things that you don't even, like, Sometimes you'll discover these things by feel and then realize what you did after the fact. Like with the, the traits, all of the names of the traits are what you would describe that person as, as a third person. Like there are traits that are actually very pejorative, right? That say idiot or annoying or doomed or, you know, whatever. Like there, there's traits that, that, that sound very negative, but then all of the trait descriptions are from the perspective of the person, and none of them are pejorative. Every single trait description is very positive about what that trait is, or or at least you know offers justifications, right? Like somebody, like like if there, I think there's a trait called lazy, where somebody says, "Yeah, I'm I'm doing a really important job. I'm holding down this couch," you know, and they're 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 right. making light of it. Other people are resenting them because they're lazy, but they're making light of it, and they think it's no big deal, and they just they think it's funny that they're such a such a right. chill, relaxed you know person. Um, and so, but but. We, we didn't really set out to do that on at first. I just started writing them and then noticed what I was doing after the fact that I was, you know, writing, you know, I wanted people to be able to evaluate a character from the outside and see very in very straightforward, honest terms 
who is this person? What are they like? What are the benefits and and and, and you know and the downsides of recruiting them? And so I wanted the 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 names, the traits to be just very straightforward and blatant about who the person is. But then when you drill into it, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunities to give our characters unique voices, right? Because, you know, they're all sharing a lot of voices. They're all talking about a lot of the same things. We can't afford to write a lot of, you know, uh, bespoke, uh, bespoke dialogue. And so, uh, and so it seemed like such a great opportunity to give them a voice that I started writing all of those traits in their voices. And so now we have this interesting, it created this sort of interesting contrast in some cases where a character, you know, the name of the trait would be negative, but the expression of the trait in the description would be positive. And that tension actually felt good enough that that we ended up sort of establishing a rule that says we always do this. We always, disc- you know, give them the trait that, uh, give them a trait name that sounds like what other people would say about them, and then a trait description that's from their own perspective. And it gives us a lot of interesting little dramatic opportunities that are subtle. I don't think a lot of people are just thinking like, oh, this is this, look at this great thing they did with the traits. Like nobody notices that we're doing that. But but I think it gives them sort of an edge and a flavor that's just a little different from traits you see in other games. And I, I think that whether people can identify exactly what our rules are or not, um, I think it does sort of give them a little bit of an edge and makes it makes them a little bit more memorable than they'd otherwise be. No, I, I agree with that. And I think kind of how you're describing it there, a trait is more something that describes who someone was. But mm-hmm. I think a skill is something that someone can learn more, like, say, computers or like plumbing, like they can learn those things and actually become good at those things. While a trait is something that they were before. And it's not really something as learned, I would say. It's yeah, that's that's kind of that, that's that's. Yeah. So if you're trying to like triangulate on where the boundary is, that's that's one of the perspectives you can take on it. But I do think analysis would work as a skill because in the zombie apocalypse, you know, if you're analyzing things, I mean, that is going to be something that's very useful. You know, it could have to do with like base building or something like that, because you always have to analyze something in order to figure out the best uh, opportunity to take on a situation. Definitely the word analysis works better as the name of a skill uh, than, than it would as a, I mean, analysis in general, just a, a broad concept like that. We, I don't think we, we never have traits that, that, that take that, you know, we would, ha- we would, we could have someone be an analyst as a trait, uh, but analysis right. is a skill. Uh, it, it, it's so weird to be like, you know, to actually be kind of digging into, you know, <laughs> Definitely. what different, what, what, what role in the game, different words are allowed to play, but like, it, it, Andy, our, our lead writer, and I have a lot of conversations about this where, you know, one of us will propose a name for something and the other will be like, I'm not really comfortable with that. And we're like, and the first person is like, yeah, I wasn't sure either. But figuring out exactly why a given name or title or description doesn't quite fit into the style guide of our game. Is sort of, I mean, we're, we're always kind of pushing the boundaries of this and trying to figure out where those boundaries are. It's, it's always an interesting discussion. That makes sense. But um, that being said, in terms of Daybreak, which just came out, what was your kind of favorite thing that you were excited for people to try about Daybreak? Like something that you might have worked on or something that was really exciting for you to have people react to? So uh, for, for Daybreak in speci- uh, for Daybreak specifically, um, my my only role on that team was to be building the uh, the skills and the traits for the characters that you're playing. Um, and, and a couple other things here and there. Like, I think uh, we needed some cu- custom um, help text, which, you know, I tend to write. Um, things like that. But mostly I was about, you know, building, building the characters. And so, uh, so I guess, yeah, I mean... So the, the red talent I, stuff, probably? Wait, what'd you say? The red talent characters, probably, would uh, be oh, your most... The, yeah, the red talent characters, specifically. So, so the, the first problem we had was we really wanted players to feel like 
they were, you know, badasses. We wanted them to get come into this feeling like, uh, you know, that they weren't that, that when they failed uh, against the zombie horde, it wasn't because their character was weak; it was because the zombies were strong. We wanted to feel like we gave them every single tool they could possibly need in order to succeed, so that they really felt like it was it was you know kind of a fair fight. Like like this, you know, we wanted this to feel like a very uh, you know competitive mode where you felt like you know when you when you beat it, it was because you were amazing, and you know, and when you failed at it, it was it was just because it was so freaking hard. And uh, and so giving you you know every possible tool that you could that you could possibly use, including all of the skills, felt like the right way to go. And so you know that was why we sort of restructured the skill system from the ground up, and uh, and made it so that you could have these single uber skills that covered all of the abilities of all these other skills. So that was my first uh, sort of assignment was to build these skills that would make the red talent characters feel like th they were not lacking a single thing. Like there was nothing, you know, you cannot blame your character if something goes wrong. Your character is perfect. Um, and so, but then once we, uh, and then I also needed to solve some other minor problems, things like, you know, we didn't want weapons to ever break during daybreak. And the easiest way to do that was to just put a trait on the character that means, you know, this character never breaks weapons. And so right. so I was, you know, there also sort of spot-solving problems like that in, in, in the simplest way by using the character's skills and traits. Yeah, um, I think it's Red Talon Contract is a trait, right? Uh, so I, I believe so. Yeah, or Red Talon, yeah. um, uh, it's got a different name. I'm not sure what it is. Red Talon Contractor is the trait that we put on uh, the recruitable characters that, oh, yes, yes. That, that make them an outsider in your community. That make, that mark them forever as somebody who they're slow at gaining standing uh, because people know they come from the outside and they might have an agenda of their own. It's hard to really be sure. So it's hard for them to become heroes and leaders in the community. They can, but it just takes them a lot longer and a lot more effort to do it. Um, but but yeah, so after we had after we'd established what a Red Talon character feels like in Daybreak, then it was my job to to come up with well what's the version of that that the player gets to bring into the base game because we want them to feel like it's the same character but they we have actually some more freedom with what with you know the base game characters we can start them in different places so you know characters feel like they come from different backgrounds and need to be trained up in different ways to reach their maximum potential um you know, and we also you know there were some things we couldn't do in daybreak things like the special melee attacks tended to have kind of problematic effects uh, on on the experience. Things like if you could cut the legs off every single zombie that came nearby, then you've got this army of crawlers that you have to just slowly, you know, work your way through in order to end the right. wave uh, or, you know, defeat the wave. And that just, it wasn't, it didn't really add much. It actually made the game worse if you could do that. And so even though it's a powerful ability, it just didn't actually make the, the game funner. Um, I know you took away, like, aim snap you took away, for example. Yeah, and aim snap would, yeah. would, in a lot of cases, just make sniping too easy, and we wanted this to feel more like it's about player skill and less about, you know, well, I've just got this magical ability that makes me good at aim. So right. so we removed those from, from the core game, I mean, so from the core Daybreak experience, but then when we went back to the Sandbox game and we were bringing in these characters, we're like, well, let's set up an alternate version of all these skills that have all these abilities unlocked so that we can make that work. So so my job there was to, you know, was to make the new version of the skill, versions of the skills that were actually, you know, that, that had more options, you know, at the player's disposal, um, and then come up with the set of varied traits that would make sort of interesting different versions of this Red Talon character instead of just, you know, I've recruited a Red Talon character and they're all identical because they have all the same skills to some degree or another they do have a lot of the same skills but we wanted it to still feel like they came from different places different backgrounds and had different you know sort of specializations which is why we've got all those unique fifth skills that they that they have 
Um, and then after that, it was my job to sort of create the mechanism for delivering these guys. Cause I, 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 uh, scripted some missions for the original state of decay two, Um, and so I, you know, I knew how to, how that tool worked. And so, you know, so I was in charge of, uh, creating the, the radio options that call in, uh, the prestige trader that call in the, the red talent recruits and making sure that that experience was as straightforward and foolproof as possible. Um, and so if, if you run into any problems with it, please let me know, uh, <laughs> as soon as you can, because <laughs> it's, it's really important to me that, that when, if people have spent the time earning prestige and they spend it on one of these characters, we really want to make sure that they're delivered in a very obvious, clear way. So you can definitely get the thing that you that you spent your prestige on. Yeah, I've tried it so far and it worked perfectly for me. I got a character that had logistics on them and I love that character. So they're really awesome. Well, that is a big load <laughs> off my mind. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of those fifth spills real quick, is there any... Um... I know you mentioned all of them on the stream, so I won't have you mention all of them here, but <laughs> <laughs> but is there anyone that was like particularly your favorite or maybe like, oh, this skill, like all combat medicine was really hard to think of like how it work or any stories about any of those skills? Uh, so yeah, co combat medicine is one where, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of the features in the game you'd imagine combat medicine being about, right? Like you right. Know, going up to somebody, putting bandages on them is not an interaction that we have in our game. Uh, and so, but real, uh, but I, you know, I realize that increased stack size is kind of what made sense for that. Like if you're, you know, having, having the medicine and surgery specialties so that you can, you know, uh, help, you know, manufacture, you know, really good, you know, first aid equipment, stuff like that. And then you can bring more of it into the field that felt appropriate for that. Um, I don't, my, my favorite one, honestly, was I was just looking up, I was looking up military jargon, trying to find terms that would be interesting. And uh, honestly, like a lot of my, the most fun that I have in my job is just coming up with the names for things. That's why, you know, uh, I have jealously held on to uh, the naming system as one of the systems that, that, uh, the, that I manage, uh, because it's just so fun to come up with names for characters and, and nicknames and things like that. Um, but yeah, so, so gut packing is actually probably my favorite because it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, it's like military slang for, 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 you know, feeding the troops and, right. uh, it's sort of thinking of it as an industrial process of just getting their stomachs full and not as an artistic process of, of making, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, tasting food. Um, so, but I, I, I like that phrase so much that I, I just, I needed to come up with a skill that, that was called gut packing. So, uh, so that's why that's there. Yeah. And the gut packing skill in particular, that one seems so useful. I mean, if you actually had two of those people then that's minus 40 percent food consumed overall so so yeah i think we do eventually um cap so if you stack up a bunch of reductions to food consumption we do have a cap like a lower bound so that you can't just say our you know our people eat no food or you know <laughs> right. our people are solar powered or uh and you definitely we don't want people you know generating food spontaneously because that that's you know if you actually you know had like what like negative uh food consumption i think that would mean that people are just like sprouting mana from their skin or something like that and it that that felt like you know didn't quite fit the the, the tone of the story which makes sense i'm, I'm sure that's why you uh, capped hacking at one outpost right because that would be crazy to have more than one more than seven yeah well i mean eventually the thing is there's only room on that screen for eight outposts right and so we use right, six right. uh and we're like okay for daybreak Daybreak is a very special release. We're going to add one more slot, but now we've only got room to do one more. And so, if we ever want to add an eight slot, like we're going to have to very carefully choose that moment and and decide what mechanism <laughs> is going to give you that eight slot. So we're we're holding that back because we because we know that's going to be a special moment, and we really don't want to you know we don't want to squander it on something small. No, definitely that makes sense. But speaking of Daybreak, uh, do you have any quick stories about interacting with fans at PAX West? Oh, that's interesting. So we we actually had several people that, you know, that, I mean, our line was 
between one and a half and two hours long. And we had a few people who went through the line multiple times. And I was like, I was really impressed by that because, you know, when I go to PAX, I mean, my day is full. You know, there's I want, there's so many things to see there. There's so many things that I want to do. The idea that somebody would want to go through our line multiple times just to have this, you know, 15 minute experience with Daybreak really kind of blew my mind. Um, but my, my favorite thing to watch uh, was when, you know, a lot of folks, they were total strangers and they were coming up and they wouldn't really talk to each other very much. They'd just each individually do their best to, to learn how to play Daybreak and to, you know, do the best showing they could. But now and then we got a group where either you'd have a group that were, they were very well coordinated, they were already friends, or you'd have sometimes an individual um, who would just be barking directions the entire time into the headsets and <laughs> right. uh and you know not in an oppressive way but just you know calling out like oh the zombies you know to have dropped this wall like they're maintaining their their situational awareness a lot and calling out everything they noticed to the rest of the team and those teams performed a lot better because you know they had uh they had you know much better information and so that's one reason why you know when we did our our, our release stream we wanted to make sure that we didn't just you know goof around with a with, with a solo game with just like me and brant hanging out in there but we wanted to you know, kind of do the it was it was pretty logistically uh, ambitious to make this happen at our studio because we didn't have a lot of you know uh, Xboxes set up to be retail kits uh, around the office. Um, but we uh, yeah so we set up a full four player game mostly because when we're representing this game to the public we want them to see people cooperating we want them to hear the voice chat we want them to you know think of this as a very cooperative experience not just a super hardcore mode for super solo players though there certainly are some out there who have really impressed us uh, Swiss Army Knife I think is is one of our one of our uh, longtime uh, players who has gotten very good at the game and he he soloed it like within an hour of Daybreak coming out which was hilarious to us because none of us can do that. <laughs> Uh, a few of the QA folks can sometimes solo it. They definitely, you know, can't reliably solo it their very first time playing. Uh, so that was very impressive to us. Uh, but we really want to represent this game as primarily a co-op experience because we want people to, you know, we feel like that's probably the best experience with people, you know, communicating and, and calling out danger to each other and, and feeling like they're working together to defend their base. That's such an iconic part of, 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 of zombie lore. You know, we see that depicted in TV and movies and things so much, you know, with, with a, a coordinated team being able to survive the zombies because they communicate and they work so well together. So we want people to have that experience. And even if, you know, they're like me and I'm, I, I don't play a lot of co-op, co-op games uh, I, I at least want them to to sort of imagine that as being sort of the 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 meaning of this game is that you know you work together you you know you at the top of your game you co co uh, communicate and collaborate and that's what helps you survive yeah i think with daybreak i mean it's so well built and, you know, major props to you guys for that, that like you pretty much have to coordinate because if you have a team that's not talking to each other, you're probably not going to last. I mean, I'd be surprised if a team like that can actually win without talking to each other. So you really have to communicate. Yeah, if, we, you know, if you're depending on somebody uh, to, to watch a certain part of the wall or whatever, and they let it fall down and let the technician get get et behind you, uh, there's not a lot you can do about it, no matter how well you were playing in your area of the game. Like, you know, you, exactly. it's really hard to manage it all by yourself. Yeah, I mean, I know the teams I've played on, you know, we call out things, okay, um, left wall's down or like, you know, something like that. So Yeah. <laughs> No, I definitely love Daybreak. You know, thank you to you and everyone at the team that made that. It was very amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so I had nothing to do with how Daybreak plays. I was just building the dudes. But yeah, there's a lot of folks, a lot of really good folks in our studio who put uh, tons of time and effort into Daybreak, and and it really shows. I mean, they made a lot of really good decisions. You know, there were so many possibilities. You know, when you're, you know, the only the only constraint we really had was that uh, it had been announced very early on that our second DLC was going to be some kind of horde mode type experience, um, and so 
you know, zeroing in on exactly what that meant and exactly what the right experience was going to be. It took some, you know, time and iteration and experimentation. And uh, I feel like people made a lot of really good decisions in that process. It would have been very easy to just sort of uh, get committed and funnel down, you know, a, a wrong path to make something that was going to be just not really all that fun because uh, it's that's just so easy to do it's very easy to sort of you know get stuck in a rut mentally and not realize that there's alternatives but this team stayed very you know fast and agile and they you know they when when they made mistakes they recognized them quickly and they and they adjusted and they ended up winnowing it down to a very tight simple but really fun experience and so yeah i'm I, you know I, I get to brag on them because I didn't do any of those things. I was just building the characters on the side. Uh, I was really impressed with what that team was able to pull off. Yeah, I think they did a great job. And you could at least, you know, give yourself a pat on the back for those skills because those skills are really amazing <laughs> for the skills too. So, Well, thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying them. <laughs> no problem. But I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. But before you go, just um, do you want to mention anything kind of fun on your personal bucket list that you still want to do in life? So anything that doesn't have to be about gaming, but... Oh, I still want to do in life. I mean, the the main thing I'm focused on these days is just uh, all the milestones that my uh, that my that my children are, are 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 crossing right now. You know, seeing seeing uh, partly it's their interest in games. You know, seeing like my, my oldest daughter get into the same some of my favorite games has been has been a lot of fun. Uh, seeing my my son who's only three, how you know he's there's a lot of things he's not good at yet, but he's still very good at video games. He can uh, he knows how to. His favorite thing is to take some game and completely set it up to be a co-op experience. Like you know get. Multiple multiple, um, uh, you know, uh, profiles signed in, set it up with, with split screen and then go and, and say, dad, dad, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. It's one of his only sentences is I want to show you something. And he'll drag me in and be like, oh, apparently we're playing garden warfare now. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh, so, so watching my awesome. kids cross those milestones is, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've, I'm 40 years old, but my life is over now. Right. So, you know, they're doing all the interesting stuff. So. I'm kidding. I'm, I know life does not end at 40. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> No, that definitely makes sense, though. I mean, I have the same thing with me. And, you know, beyond, you know, seeing my daughter grow and everything, um, my wife and I want to go to Italy at some point. That'd be kind of cool. So that, you know, that, yeah. So we, we live really far away from a lot of our uh, family members. And so we don't have a lot of really easy, like long-term babysitting uh, queued up right. for our kids. So <laughs> we're expecting that our kids, before we're really able to travel as a couple, uh, we're, we're going to have to get them just a little bit older. So they're easier to foist off on other people. But yeah, you know, we, we've got ambitions like that too. You know, I've always wanted to like go to Europe with my wife and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, hopefully at some point, you know, the kids will start going to college and, you know, or being old enough for, for long-term sleepovers. And uh, then, yeah, Maybe things will open up a little bit. Definitely. Right now, though, I mean, being focused on the kids, I mean, there's there's definitely worse things in life than uh, being focused on these, these little people. So uh, it's 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 been it's been a trip. I'm really you know, and I'm just really glad that you know my kids have kind of turned out. A lot of them, they all have very different interests. You know, they have different games that they like. They have different uh, you know geeky fandoms that they're into. Uh, they're they're all ex- extremely different people, and you know some of them have more in common with my wife, some have more in common with me. But just getting to know all these individual, these very unique individuals is is a big part of the fun because we you know we they they start you know from the same you know basic place. They all start out as babies, and they just very quickly start establishing their own little personalities, which is just it's amazing to watch, and it's actually, you know, one of the things that um, is kind of inspirational, you know, when I've been working on State of Decay is the fact that, you know, it, that every human, you know, it's, it's, it's actually impossible to sort of, uh, uh, you know, like every stereotype is wrong, <laughs> you know, about somebody. And it's, 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 right. po- it's impossible to just make blanket statements about who people are and what people do. You know, every individual is, is their own person. And I think, you know, the, 
well, that's kind of one of the themes of the of the the character generator in State of Decay is we're really trying to establish how different people can be and how you know you that no two people should ever feel like they're exactly alike. And uh, like even even the Red Talon soldiers who were meant to all serve the same purpose, we still wanted to make sure that they felt like unique individuals. And uh, because that's that's the experience you have, you know, watching humans grow and develop, um, you know, you can't help but be really struck by how ridiculously individual they all are. And so we wanted our characters to feel, you know, to whatever degree we could the same way no i definitely think you achieved that too i mean i think you said you have over 1200 traits in the game so there's a lot of options so yeah we got, we, we, yeah, we got a, hopefully as many characters as borderlands has guns yes so there's so many character types and uh, i think that's really great about the game so but i want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate that you know thank you for giving us your time and coming to this interview with us oh no thank you this is i mean your, your podcast has actually been a really great resource for me because you know uh you, you build these enormous uh piles of content these huge spreadsheets full of full of data and um you know it's really hard to get a really sort of you know broad base of reactions to all this stuff people pick their favorites and things but uh i love the way that, that your podcast that on your podcast you really try to drill into the details and be very complete in your analysis of the game uh, because you know I, I listen to your podcast every week and it, it helps give me sort of like an out an outside perspective on what we've built and and because you're so thorough i always feel like after i've after i've listened to your reaction to the game i feel like i've gotten you know there's nothing i'm missing about that particular system at that particular time like i've gotten some kind of reaction to everything it's it's been it's been really useful you know my um uh like writer friends that i've had have talked about you know cultivating what they call wise readers which are you know readers who are very good at giving them the kind of feedback they need in order to uh to make their work better and you know it's and it's hard to find out some readers are 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 you know they they make really useful comments and some readers make kind of annoying and useless comments and you got to find the right people. And so I, I consider you to be one of the right people uh, when it comes to our work on this game. You know, you, you, you do very thorough analysis of it and you give us a lot of really good feedback. And so it's, I, I find it incredibly useful. So if, if anybody, you know, if this is your first time listening to this podcast and the interview with me is the only thing you've heard, definitely, you know, keep listening to it or go back into, uh, <laughs> into Blaze's, uh, you know, past catalog and, and, and check out this stuff because it's, it's been very useful to us. And so, you know, I, I think it'll be useful to players, too. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And that means a lot that you're making those comments. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. But... And uh, yeah, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. And if people want to check out the podcast, I'll just give you um, some tips on that. You can either check us out on iTunes. You can check us out on Google Play, Google Podcasts, Acast, a bunch of different directories. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me via my email, theblazeexperience at gmail.com. And if you want to contact me on Twitter or um, get at me on Xbox, it's Blaze Experience. So capital B-L-A-I-S-E, capital X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. Those are the main ways to contact me. And I do have a Discord that will be in the show notes of every podcast. And Jeffrey, if people want to get in contact with Undead Labs or yourself, how can they best leave feedback? So uh, Undead Labs is at Undead Labs on Twitter. Uh, that's probably one of the best ways to, to, to get in contact with us. Uh, we've got a Discord too, and I have no idea how to tell people how to get to our Discord because uh, I know it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated to sort of, you know, to share Discord stuff. But if uh, if anybody has any questions about the game, um, uh, Megan, our community uh, our, our community manager or social media manager, whatever her title is, uh, she's on there. She's on uh, at Undead Labs, and she's, she's great at her job. And so if you want to, you know, if you have any questions about the game, comments about the game, you can 
can leave them there. If you want to talk to me personally, um, I'm at Rangatang on Twitter, and so you can you can find me there. And I've also uh, Dirangatang is the name of my channels on uh, Twitch and YouTube. Uh, and I'm not going to spell that because it's a silly name that I never should have chosen. But uh, if you <laughs> if you, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I've got I've got links to stuff there. So you know you can <laughs> you can check that out if you want to. But uh, the the main thing that I do actually on on Twitch and Mixer is uh, the Undead Lab stream, and so you can you can follow that. It's just Undead Labs um, at you know on on Twitch and Mixer. So if you if you check that out, you know we do a stream right now. We're doing streams every single week since we we keep having you know new things come out that we want to talk about, and uh, and we're going to keep that up. You know I I don't know if it's always going to be weekly. Uh, if we go into a lull where you know we're working on something you know that's that's pretty big and deep and we're and we're you know waiting for a long time between releases, then we might go a little bit less less often with those with the streams. But right now we're streaming every week, and we'd love to have folks in the audience. Yeah, and I try to get people to check out that stream as well. I mean I think it's a great stream you do every week and i love you know the way you host it you do a great job with that no oh, thank you you're welcome and definitely like uh jeffrey said here i would recommend checking out his twitch he plays a lot of indie games on there during his lunch breaks so you know check out him playing those indie games it's really fun thank you you're welcome but thank you for coming on here and i will definitely make sure to put the undead labs discord in the show notes as well if people want to find that, that will so. help yeah because i don't know how yeah. to even describe that on the air i'll make sure to put that in there <laughs> <laughs> but thank you i really appreciate you coming in to talk with me today thank you oh yeah no thank you it was a lot of fun and thank you to the audience for listening we really appreciate it so thank you for listening to the blaze experience (laughs) 